In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within podcast. And a special guest here today, I, I don't know anybody that knows Africa better. Um, I've got Tim Harold with me today, uh, one of the consultants at WTA. And uh, whenever anybody asks me a specific Africa question that I don't know, I always direct them to Tim just because this guy's been there been there and done that, one of, one of those guys. How are you doing, Tim? I'm wonderful today. How are you, Mark? Pretty good. So you're down, down in Kentucky right now at home? I am. We're we're getting summer hitting us this week. Getting back in the nineties. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I've uh, spent a lot of a lot of time down there on the farm in the summer, especially during COVID when we were getting everything everything set up. And uh, that the uh, humidity and heat down there in the summer really gets you. Yep, it does yeah. for sure. So let's start before before we just dig right into to Africa, Tim. I know a lot of people know your know your your story and and so forth just because you've been in the hunting industry for so long. How long have you actually been in the hunting industry, and how did you get your start? Gosh, um, I don't know a date. Uh, back in the early nineties, I guess I got some stuff published in a magazine. So that was the first sort of dipping my toes into the industry. Obviously I wasn't making a living doing it then, but I started, that's how I got into it is when I was in college, I wrote a newspaper column for my little local newspaper on hunting and fishing. And they'd let me do that whenever I wanted to. And they paid me 20 bucks. Okay. And you know, it just got my foot in the door. And then after I did that a little bit, I started submitting articles on waterfowl hunting to wildfowl magazine. And they got some stuff published in Turkey call for turkeys. And the more that I got published, the easier it was to get other things published. And so I really started with writing and then that grew into, I met Harold Knight and David Hale of Knight and Hale game calls, another Kentucky company. And, they had me go out and do some seminars for them and some things like that. And then that was in the heyday of 
you know, actual videos on VHS tapes mm-hmm. for for hunting. There wasn't an outdoor channel or a sportsman's channel or any of that stuff back then. So they started including me on some of that that stuff and, you know, stuck my toe in the water on the, the video stuff and it just kind of went from there. I kept writing and I kept doing videos and then that rolled into TV and how I really got into the consulting part of it was I was going on all these hunts and, and doing all these cool trips and just everybody I knew wanted to go and they were like, set me up on that, set uh-huh. me up on it, you know, and it ended up that I was spending, I mean, countless hours setting other people's trips up, but it wasn't a business. I was just doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I started out and really I started grand slam hunts and that was turkey hunting and I was booking 150 turkey hunters a year. And then I just branched out into big game after that. And it just kind of rolled from there. And then whatever, I guess it's been eight years or so you and I met Mm -hmm. and joined up with WTA and been rolling ever since. So eight years have gone by quick. Yeah, no doubt. Very, very quick since, uh, your twins are now off and in, in college. Oh, we graduated. Yeah, I mean it's just and so I've yeah. got I've got my my son is graduating from high school this year and then I look down the down the pipe here I've got a daughter that'll be a sophomore next year and one in eighth grade so five years from from being empty nesters and it I can't believe it's yep. gonna happen that quick. It flies. Yeah. Yep. Just does. So when you what did you originally go to college for when you were in school and started your writing what was what so, was the plan before this all all took a turn the, for the better? The, the original plan I wanted to go to law school. And I worked for a law firm almost the whole time I was in college. And I decided after working there, that wasn't for me. So I went back and got a master's degree in natural resource conservation. And that was when all the, you know, environmental stuff was really coming around and people were taking notice of it. And my dad worked in the petroleum industry and I thought, well, I'll get a job as a consultant with petroleum stuff or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I started out trying to get experience working for the state EPA here in Kentucky. And quite honestly, it also gave me a ton of time off to guide waterfowl hunters or guide turkey hunters or, you know, whatever. I could get a lot of time off. And I was working for the state and that was wonderful. And then I met the original founders of Under Armour, and they were about to come out with their first delve into the outdoor whatever. And I used it. I wrote an article about it. They thought it was great. And long story short, a year later, I was the marketing director for Under Armour when they started started their outdoor division. And I was there for about five years um, as we built that business up. So, you know, it's funny. I ended up getting a master's degree and I did work with it a little bit, but I mean, you know, what I do now is marketing and sales and, and, and still write a bit. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people's stories like that, it's just things fall together and you keep working hard and it isn't necessarily what you started out planning on. Yep. Yep. There's a, there's a, a lot of that in the outdoor industry for sure. So when yeah. you, did I assume your 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 dad probably got you into hunting at an early age? Is that how you yeah. got started? Yeah, I mean, I lived in eastern Kentucky, and when I was a kid, we didn't even have a deer season. I mean, there were no deer, there were no turkey. 
my dad raised like you guys. My dad raised English and Lou Ellen Satters and he grouse. Uh-huh. And I tagged along with him, you know, from the time I was in kindergarten. And then he did go to Pennsylvania to deer hunt because that's where the oil that he worked with was from and got to know those guys. So when I was 11 years old, he took me to Pennsylvania for the first time on, you know, sort of a big adventure to go whitetail deer hunting. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, our family vacations were always fishing trips. My mom loved to fish and my grandparents loved to fish. So yeah, I was, I mean, I, I don't ever remember not shooting and hunting and fishing kind of thing. It was definitely a big part of our family life growing up. Yeah. And you were one that just got hooked on it from, from the first yeah. time you went out. Yeah, I, I was. And, you know, I, I mean, when I was three or four years old, we not that I mean, we had a house and a boat and cars and all that, but we basically lived in a tent on a lake. My dad would go to work back and forth from there and mom and I would fish every day. So I, you know, I was totally hooked and I think they were all really more fishermen and the, the hunting thing really hit me more than anybody else in the family, especially when we got and discovered turkeys and I lost my mind. <laughs> so, and still have, still so, have, you know, 40 years later, still have. So on the, what I, I've never asked this question though, cause I've heard, I've heard it a few times in Kentucky back. I mean, it's kind of the same thing here in Michigan 40 years ago. There just weren't the deer or turkey numbers. What was the dramatic change in Kentucky? Because I mean, the, the I mean, the deer herd and turkey population now is crazy. Right. Well, they just started managing them. I mean, when I, when I was a kid in LBL, Land Between Lakes, far western Kentucky, there were a few turkeys. And then right on the Virginia border, there were a handful of turkeys. But, okay. you know, the NWTF came in and did a wonderful job and they relocated everywhere all over the state. They traded for birds out of Missouri and Illinois and Iowa. And I the the biologist back then was a good friend of mine and he just did a wonderful job and they did the same thing with deer and just you know really started managing them and 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 repopulating them and they just took off you know after after they repopulated all of them and then really took care of them we've obviously got wonderful habitat down here in kentucky to grow big deer and tons of turkeys and it it took off and People were really glad to have them, so they wanted to look after them as well, and and you know it's just been great ever since. Yeah, it's just one of those great conservation stories. Yeah, exactly. So uh, another side subject here as we're going because you you've done a ton of turkey hunting in your life. What is the toughest turkey species to hunt? I mean, I think easterns are, and especially easterns down south. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're pressured, um, Osceolas are really hard. If you're in a pressured situation or on public land, and I've hunted that some, and they're really hard because yep. they just don't gobble. But, you know, everybody always said the Osceola was the hardest. Uh-huh. I think if you're on good managed private property, they're one of the easiest yep, because they're patternable. You know, they, they do the same things, and maybe they do, maybe they don't gobble a lot, depending on the bird. But um, I think you go down in the swamps of South Carolina or Alabama or Mississippi and you hunt an eastern turkey where they've got an eight-week season and guys hunt all the time, that's by far the hardest turkey in the country. Yeah. Up here in Michigan, they're not real easy either after that that first couple of days. They get educated. I, I was up there three weeks ago or something like that, and I mean, 
I got my butt kicked until the last minute of the last day, literally. Um, they just, they weren't gobbling, yeah. you know, and I, they had been hunted a little bit. They gobble on the roost and you might not hear another gobble all day. And they were out there with plenty of hens, but they weren't going to come to you. Yep. Yep. And you were, I know you were hunting with Tom. Were you hunting over by Nuego? Where were yeah. You? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, five minutes from town or wherever he's got a buddy that's got a great plow, a couple buddies that have got, um, some property that they own and live on and, and, you know, small parcels, you know how that is. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, some of what we were hunting was 50 acres and 20 acres, but it had plenty of turkeys on it. They just didn't want to cooperate. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then every once in a while you catch one of those days to where whatever happened, they're all, they're all talking like crazy. But a lot of the times yeah. that later season here in Michigan, it's, it is tough. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think? The, sure. What do you think the easiest species is? You know, if you hit Rios and Miriams mm -hmm. halfway right, I mean, I've seen those things literally come to a call well over a half a mile away. But, you know, any of them, if they get yeah. pressured, can get hard. But I would say probably the Miriams, for me, they're very vocal and are pretty happy to come a long way. And I think a lot of them live in open country and they're used to traveling like that. So, um but, you know, it all depends, like you just said, it depends on the time and the season, if they've been pressured or are they hand up. I yeah. used to hunt Nebraska a lot, and you'd go at the start of their season, and they were in flocks of 150 turkeys. <laughs> well, you're not going to call yeah. one out of that. Or, yeah. You know, you got to get where they want to be anyway. And then as they break up and you got Tom's looking for hens and all that, then they'd come to anything. You could throw a call on the ground and they'd come to it. But you know, early season was tough, and then after they were done in late May, they'd get tough again. But there's a definite sweet spot in there for them that lasts a long time with Miriams anyway. Yep. So have you have you been keeping track? How many states have you turkey hunted in? You know, I think it's about 30. Okay. But I don't know. I know they're oh gosh, I don't know. It's been 20 years ago. I'd hunt 10 states a spring and I wasn't trying to, I mean, I've never really tried to do the, you know, all 49 uh -huh. super slam or I wasn't trying to rack up grand slams or anything like that. I just wanted to go turkey hunting and see different parts of the country yep. or go hunt with friends in different places. And it took me to, you know, Hawaii and, and Oregon and California and, michigan and you know all over but it just kind of was organic it wasn't setting out to do anything it was just being a crazy turkey hunter. yep yeah i've i've i'm kind of the same way i i, I want to try to get one or two every spring that's a different state just to because yeah. they, they react different right every everything's sure. a little bit different and it helps when i get back here because you learn something yep. even hunting osceola's right like I've, yep. I've hunted the high pressure ones that you were talking about. And guess what? You're not calling. You, you just got to right. get them patterned. It's, I That's call it. it more deer hunting than anything. You've got to get that turkey exactly. patterned and just get close enough to be able to do something. That's it. But it's, That's it. but it's fun, right? Like it, yeah. it, well, it, it, it's a challenge. Yeah. And if we, if we killed one every time we went out there, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be much to it. Yep. So. Yeah, exactly. So looking, looking back from your childhood, do you have any favorite memories that, that still stick with you today that kind of helped yeah, instill I mean, the passion? Those, those trips that I got to go to Pennsylvania to deer with my dad, you know, their season still opens the Monday after Thanksgiving. 
So we would take off on Friday after Thanksgiving and drive from Kentucky to northern Pennsylvania. And then we would scout around and mess around on Saturday and Sunday. And then we'd start on Monday. I got to miss school. I got to do something that nobody else I knew got to do. I mean, we didn't have a deer season. So it was a really big deal. And it was just close time with my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was a 10 hour drive up there and we were together and together in a hotel room and hunting together. And he had good friends up there that became good friends of mine as well. So it was just a real special time. And I learned a lot. I mean, they were teaching me what a rub and a scrape was. And that was the first time I ever saw wild turkeys and, you know, and a lot of bears and, and some different things up there. So it was a big adventure for an 11 year old kid to get oh, to yeah. do something like that. It's always stuck with me. Oh, that's great. How has, and you mentioned writing earlier, how has writing, like the type of writing that you do, how has it changed over the last 25 years? Like, it Well, used- I mean, there, yeah, there, it's changed completely because back, I used to write 40 plus magazine articles a year. I mean, it was definitely part of my living. And back then, number one, there were a lot of magazines because the internet wasn't even around. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you got your information. There really wasn't much outdoor TV. So that was the outdoor entertainment media. And with there being a lot more magazines, obviously there was a lot more space for articles. A lot of what they wanted back then was how to. Okay. And I wrote a lot of it, but I didn't particularly like writing that stuff. It was just boring to me. I mean, how many ways can you tell a guy to rattle in a deer? Yeah. You know, or how many articles can you write about hunting turkeys on windy or rainy days? But that's what magazines wanted a lot of. And what I like is good hunting stories. And that's what I always wanted to read. And if I could pull some information out of it, that helped me great. But, you know, the books that I grew up reading were just good hunting stories that had adventure to them and that sort of thing. And there wasn't a ton of it back then. And, you know, there's not that many magazines around now. And what writing I do now, you know, I'll submit things to Sports Afield or Dallas Safari Club's magazine. And I do it more out of, you know, just a passion to write it and and tell a good story than anything. But at one point, I just quit. The how-to stuff. I said, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this as a living mm-hmm. and I'm just going to write the things I want to write. And, and that's it. And I like, you know, I like to write destination pieces and hunting stories. And it's, it's, so. it's funny you say that, that how-to, because that's, it's actually transitioned. So on YouTube and, and online now, those are some of the most popular videos right like that's the sure. two on archery stuff like Chris B does a ton of those on on waterfall hunting Joel Strickland does does a ton and it's everybody looking to get in needs more information I never put two and two together like when you were writing the magazine that's how people were getting in and now they're just yeah like, that's oh. all you had I mean you had an oddball VHS tape here and there which were wildly popular because you could see and hear it. yep yep you know like Joel's teaching somebody how to blow a duck call I mean you get to hear it you write it, somebody's trying to picture it in their mind. And it's but the video medium is so much better um for that stuff. And, you know, with short, really short, concise videos and, and teaching you stuff and you could rewind it and play it again. And if you were calling, you could call against it or yep. to it or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean it's 
that there's I don't want to come off like there's no place for how to because yeah, yeah, it's it's just video has taken over period for magazines mm-hmm. in my opinion and and that's where all the good how to stuff's going like and you mentioned I mean there're not many hunting magazines out there now like if you look in your crystal ball and, and fast forward 10 years like what does it look like for hunting magazines yeah i mean i i would be surprised if they're still out there yeah um you know and the ones that are out there 90 percent of them now are you know they've shrunk so much if mm-hmm. they used to be 250 pages they're now 80 or 90 pages and three quarters of its ads and and all that sort of thing and i know they have to have that to survive but that's not what people want to want to see and i feel like too i mean the days of sort of freelance writers has gone away because number one there's not the places to produce them and, and put them in magazines now they'll do some writing for online but it doesn't pay anything for those guys trying to make a a living out of it but then the magazines themselves now are just kind of going all in-house because if they've only got four or five stories in a magazine and they got people on staff they might as well have those people be the ones writing the articles rather than paying somebody from the outside yep so you know for a freelance guy man it, it could be a, a tough business right now yeah so I, I normally ask this question at the end, but I feel like it's a perfect spot to right now. How, what is your take on how social media has changed the hunting industry over the last 10 to 15 years? Wow. <laughs> well, it's made a lot of people that don't have very much experience in the experts. Yep. <laughs> and that's a negative spin, but I mean, and, and I'm not trying to, to wail on anybody but i mean you got lots and lots of people out there that this is my first time doing this or this is my first time doing that and they've got a big following by whatever means and people are taking what they say as the gospel mm-hmm. but they really don't have the experience that other people have you know so I, I i see that in one way and then just the back and forth with you know the anti-hunters you know, I'm, I've got mixed feelings on it because, you know, I've had my social media shut down a number of times. I've gotten hundreds of death threats from people on social media, threatening my family, you know, and that stuff doesn't worry me because I figure that some dude locked up in his basement somewhere that never sees the light of day. But, you know, there's two sides. I mean, are we proud as hunters and put all our stuff out there? And, you know, show that we're proud that we harvested animals and that we hunt and all that. I mean, I think we've got to do that. Yep. But on the flip side of it, it does give the antis a bunch of ammunition to use against us. And that's why I think it's really important. If somebody's going to have a picture of something that they killed on, you know, Facebook or Instagram, take the time to clean the animal up. Take a tasteful picture and yep. don't have it with its tongue hanging out in the back of a pickup or sitting on it. I mean, do it right and try to honor the animal. I mean, that's what it's about. It's not about beating your chest and look what I did. It's, you know, you should have loved that experience. It should have meant something to you. And you're trying to honor that animal that, that did it. And I think we've just got to be really careful with it because, you know, we can arm the other side against us and 
it's a problem. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Yeah. It's a problem because they seem to be awfully organized and they seem to be able to get off a lot of money to try to use against us. Yep. That's a hundred percent true. And I always, I've said it a lot of times on this, on this podcast, right? Like if you look at the, the, the hardcore for hunting is probably 5% of the population and the hard sure. and the hardcore anti hunting is probably 5% of the population, right? So there's 90% yep. of the population that's in the middle that is really on, and I wouldn't say on the fence, but they're not active on either side. Right. So public opinion sways what they feel yearly sure. like how how, how it looks and we as hunters need to put a positive spin on on why we do things um and not give the anti-hunters the 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 real pull or something like that one bad picture right goes a long ways because yeah. they can make a full campaign about that or a bad video can go a long ways in in what they want to try to push and 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 make us as hunters look really bad and that's just one one picture right can do that so yeah. just as hunters we need to make sure we're doing all we can for for what we love yeah and anytime that you can you know add on there something you know, beneficial conservation wise, yeah. you know, maybe it educates somebody. I mean, most of us as hunters know it. So you're sort of preaching to the choir, but mm -hmm. you get that person out there on the fence. I know, you know, I don't have my home group of friends, you know, out of 50 people, two or three of them hunt. Yep. And the rest of them, you know, I, there may be some anti hunters in there that I don't really know about, but most of them are that on the fence group. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they see my posts from other places and they may see us in Africa with a buffalo and feeding a village and they ask questions about it. And yep. then, you know, I get to talk to them about it and they've seen the benefit of it. And I've explained, you know, that the money for trophy fees goes back to the community and builds schools and and wells and all that. And I think I've educated a lot of them. And now, you know, they see the positive in it. And, you know, if I ever fry a turkey or grill some elk, they want part of it. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that, that's perfect because your influence a small group who then influences another group after that. Right? Sure. Like if you influence them and then they're they're if they hear something somewhere else along the line, they can speak knowledgeably to it. Right. Which is what exactly. Yeah. I mean, my wife has been, you know, I used to speak at a lot of churches and and, you know, hunting was all part of it. Mm -hmm. And people would come up and say something about how could he shoot an elephant? or something like that and start on her and man now she's been around it enough she can give them the she can give them the speech you know and talk about how many people it fed and they won't be getting any protein for six months and blah 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 and so she's out there and able to, to educate them too after you know she's heard me explain it a number of times so if we can get that ball going all the better yep yep all right now it's time and i i know i don't know if you like to 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 be considered this, the so-called Africa expert, or I know you've, you've done a ton of travel in Asia and all over the world, but for some reason, Africa has always, always stuck with. Well, this, this, I this, mean, this Africa is my number one love. So, yep. you know, I, I mean, I don't know about expert, but I've got a lot of experience. So. Yep. So when was your first trip? About 20 years ago, I'll be honest with you, and I don't know the, I'd have to go back and look somewhere and find 2001, 2002, something like that. It's been about 20 years. Okay. And how many trips since then? So I just got back in March from my 35th safari. Wow. So I've, I've put in some miles over those 20 years going back and forth. Yeah. Wow. 
Okay. Normally I, normally I wouldn't do this in a, uh, uh, a podcast that's going to air air later. Um, Tim, but you'll, you'll find this one. I just, I literally just had a message come across my phone that, uh, Mary Cabela's just passed away in her sleep last night. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a wonderful lady for, for anybody that, uh, that's, that's listening right now. Obviously this is, uh, after, after the fact a week or two after the fact, but, um, the Cabela's family in general has had a, uh, a big part in, in my success in the outdoor outdoor world and in Mary played a giant part in that for anybody that knew her knows just how special of lady she was. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they did it a lot of tremendous things for the hunting industry conservation and everything. And in me as an individual individual too, I, again, normally I wouldn't, wouldn't say anything about that on a podcast, but I just, just saw that come through. So fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Yeah, well, I sure hate to hear that. She is, well, the whole Cabela family, but her, you know, specifically have done so much for conservation and what a lady i mean two years ago i booked her and dan to uganda and i think she was 81 and she went over there and shot a buffalo i mean, just, I mean yeah you know <laughs> I would, there's not many ladies out there like that I, we've we've lost a, a special one uh, we did oh yeah all right back back to back to africa so 35 times out of out of the thirty five trips, how many different countries have you visited? Um, I think nine. Okay, you know, there's a bunch of them out there I haven't been to that I would like to get to. Um, obviously, there's a lot of them that I've been back to over and over and over. But I think you know all the Southern Africa countries, and you know moving up into East Africa with Tanzania and Uganda, and I went over to Burkina Faso in West Africa before it closed down, and um, I've got to see a pretty good chunk of it, but there's a whole lot of it I'd still like to see. Now, was it, and this is a tie in my story here, but when you went to Africa the first time, was it as soon as you got there, was it love at first sight? Yep, absolutely. Well, the first day, yeah. the first thing they did with me when they picked me up at the Joburg airport was they took me to Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I could have done without <laughs> that. <laughs> Well, listen, they, they looked you up. They said, well, this guy's from Kentucky. Yeah. We're going to bring yeah, him to Kentucky. They were doing me a favor. But, um, and I'm not sure their Kentucky fried chicken is not better than ours. But, yeah. um, but that afternoon, I actually went out and took a warthog the first afternoon in one of those beautiful Africa pink sunsets. Oh. And I was hooked. That was the end of it. Yeah. I mean, 
that was the end of it. It is. And I, I tell a lot of people this because a lot of people have reservations about going to hunt in Africa or traveling over there, but it's one of those things. I, I had the same, the same thing, right? I think the majority of people start in South Africa as their first, yep. first safari. And that was dad and mine. So that's where, that's where we went. And that, that travel over back then was, was a long, brutal one from Atlanta to Joburg. And I just yep. remember getting there being tired, but we were driving to where we were going to hunt. And on the drive, I was in the front seat and there was a pack of monkeys that crossed in front of us in the road. And yep. it was like, at, from, and you'll never forget that. No, that, that, that was it. From that moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, this place is, it, I mean, it's not a deer. It's not a turkey yeah. or a raccoon or something. A pack of monkeys just ran in front of us in the road. And from that, it was just my eyes were wide open and, and sort of the same thing you said when you see that first sunset. Right. Like yeah. the sky just pops over there and, and the people are great and you never know what you're going to see. And it's one of those spots you always like I always look forward to going back and, and excited for the next trip more so than the one that just ended. Yeah, it's the variety. I mean, I was just earlier this morning filming some video stuff for the guys for our Africa sweepstakes for next year. And the variety is what I was, you know, really trying to get across to people. You know, here, if we're on a combo hunt and have a pronghorn and a mule deer yep. tag or, you know, you got a moose and a mountain goat, that's a lot. And over there, you're walking around and you can hunt 20 or 25 different species on one hunt. Yep. And it's not about killing the stuff. It's about seeing all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you're talking about, it's just a different world when you can go down a road that's basically like one of their interstates. And there are elephant crossing signs yeah. on the yeah. side of the road. And that's a legit thing. You know, it, it's definitely a different world. And then when you get into some of the, you know, wilder parts of Africa where, you know, they've set aside <clears throat> for, you know, for hunting concessions and no people live there. And, you know, you've got elephants out in the yard at night breaking branches mm -hmm. and you're hearing hippos in the river. I mean, that's heaven. Yeah. To me, anyway, I mean, it, it is, and and the whole experience. I mean, like you said, the 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 night sky over there. You know, you see the Southern Cross, and there's a million stars, and the the sounds, and sitting around the campfire, and reliving the day's activity. I mean, I, it's just heaven. It, it, so special. <laughs> like, there's no there's no way to stress that. When you mentioned the the WTA sweepstakes, let's go let's go over that right now because we've got a sweepstakes going. So if you want to check out anybody that's listening, the uh, WTA website's got it listed. But what is it, Tim? Yeah, so um, I'm going to do sort of a hosted hunt, which we do a lot of every year, where I'll go and take a group of people on a hunt wherever. But we are gonna we're gonna do a sweepstakes, and the winner gets to go. And I'm going to lead the group. We've got a couple other people that are, that are going on the trip. So it's a small group, but the chances are 25 bucks a piece. And you win basically a seven day plains game hunt with seven animals in the Kalahari region of, of South Africa. And just a, a wonderful one of our outfitters, a luxury, luxury tent camp. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but I mean, the tents are, are laid out and decorated fancier than most people's houses. They have a chef on staff, so there's gourmet food. And then the hunting is just off the charts. That area regularly 
produces mid to high fifties kind of kudu, big yum's buck. Um, you know, the genetics there are fantastic, but we're basically giving away a seven day hunt. We're giving two thousand dollars towards your airfare, which may cover it yep. if you get a good deal. Um, and then I'll be there every step of the road. You know, if it's somebody that hasn't been before, they'll be able to use my experience and I'll help guide them through everything. And, you know, we've got people lined up to to do every step of the way from from booking the flights to getting the trophies back and all that stuff. And and I'll just be hands on with all of it. But it's a, it's going to be a great trip. It's I think it's the middle of June when we're going kind of prime time over there. So people definitely need to get on our website, check out that sweepstakes page. And I think it may be running through the end of July. I'm not exactly sure, but they, they need to get those chances because it's going to, it's going to be a special trip. Perfect. So anybody listen, make sure to make sure to check that one out. Um, anybody that hasn't been there before a mid fifties kudo kudu is a heck of a kudu. So that is a primetime area where Tim's going to be hosting that one for sure. Yeah, and they can, you know, the winner can obviously they can add an observer on, or if they've got a hunting buddy that wants to come, we can set them up with a, a hunt as well. You know, we just get them bucked in there. So, um, you know, there's there's lots of options for that. But but yeah, if somebody hasn't been, they're going to be absolutely spoiled because it's it's going to be phenomenal. And if you have been to Africa already, you know what a value it is. And I, I think it's, you know, the whole package is worth a little bit over $12,000 and yeah, you're going to get it for $25 a chance. Awesome. So somebody's going to, somebody's going to do really well there. Yep. Now let's, it kind of brings up another one. We, I assume you, you've talked a lot of people through their first trip to Africa. So yeah, what, what, what are the common questions that you get from, from people that are looking to go the first time questions, worries, and, and, and right. what well, do you kind of tell the them? Biggest, the, the biggest hurdle people have is making the initial decision to go. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always the biggest, the biggest thing to get over. And, and they, it is because they've got lots of worries, you know, the travel. You know, people are really worried about the travel. Is it safe? Is it, hey, I'm not going to lie to anybody. That's a long flight to get yep. over there or, or two flights or whatever. I mean, it takes a while to get there and it's it's a long flight. But I don't know anybody that's come back and said that flight wasn't worth going to Africa. You know, I'd go every two months if I could go and do that. But, um, but you know, it, it's easy to get it booked and we get the right people to do that. And then you get there and there's nothing to worry about because I don't care where you go in Africa. Basically, when you pick up your suitcase and step out in the airport, we're going to have somebody there waiting on you. Yep. And that doesn't matter if it's in South Africa or Uganda. You know, our people are going to take care of you every step of the way. So you don't have to navigate anything. You know, we'll help with the with the travel bookings. And then once you get there, you got somebody with you the whole time. It's the same thing with getting the trophies home. We, we can help put you with the right people that will make that very easy. And your trophies will eventually get to your um, taxidermist. And it's just no big deal. But I think there's just a lot of unknowns for people. And, you know, they do have lots of questions about the travel and about the trophies and about the safety mm-hmm. and, 
and all that. And, you know, there are places in Africa I don't want to go yep. that aren't safe. And I, and I wouldn't send somebody there, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, but the vast majority of Africa is safe. And if they're going to leave anybody alone, it's usually hunters because they know hunters are bringing money into their country and they need that money brought into the country. So, I mean, you know, Zimbabwe, which I think is a wonderful country to hunt, but I mean, you'll see roadblocks here and there on the road or whatever you pull up in a land cruiser and they can tell that you're going to hunting camp. They just let you go right through because they know that that's, that's income and revenue for their country. So, um, you know, again, we're not going to send somebody to some sketchy place that they got to worry about, um, about their safety. And most of it is, is safe. Know when and where to hunt with HuntWise. No matter where I am in the world, I'm always dropping pins and tracking my adventures through their mapping features. And one of my favorite features that they have is RutCast. It's perfect to help me know when and where and exactly what stand to hunt during the rut. Search HuntWise in the App Store and use promo code MP25 to get 25% off a Pro or Elite HuntWise membership. Again, that's promo code MP25 for an additional 25% off their Pro or Elite HuntWise membership. Gotta check them out. From my Upland Slam in 2019 to the South America Waterfall Slam in 2022, anytime I'm headed on a wing shooting adventure, I'm always picking up my Benelli shotgun. If you want to dominate the skies, shoot a Benelli. See their full line of Benelli shotguns online at BenelliUSA.com or drop into a retailer near you. Black bear, bison, or whitetails, it doesn't matter where I'm going or what I'm hunting, Sever Broadhead has the right broadhead for me. They are the best expandable broadheads I've ever used. Give them a try. Right now, use promo code MP5 online at SeverBroadheads.com for an additional 5% off an already discounted product for the best possible deal. Again, that's MP5 at SeverBroadheads.com. No matter where I'm hunting in the world, I'm always wearing my Mindel boots. I guess you could say I sort of live in my Mindel hunting boots. And right now at MindelUSA.com, using promo code MPJourney, you can get a free pair of hunting socks when you order your pair of boots. Again, that's promo code MPJourney at MindelUSA.com. Now back to the journey within. Now, what is your, I know you've flown over obviously 35 times. What is your preferred flight path right now to get over? I know they well, change all the it, time. It, yeah. And it depends on where you're going in Africa. If I'm going to Southern Africa, I mean, if I'm going to South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Zambia, Mozambique, you know, all that stuff. I generally go from, from home to Atlanta mm-hmm. and Atlanta on Delta straight to Joburg. And then from there, that's kind of the hub of Southern Africa. You're either driving or catching a short flight to wherever, you know, whether it's another country or another area in South Africa, it's pretty easy. I mean, that's a long flight. It's 15 and a half hours, but personally, I'd really just get it over and done. There's routes through Europe, but I mean, you may have an eight or a 15 hour layover somewhere and then get on another 10 or 11 hour flight and, I just like to get it done as quick as I can get it done. Now, if I'm going to Tanzania or Uganda or somewhere like that, you basically have to go through Europe, mm-hmm. but you're not going near as far. And like my last flight, I, I went from 
Atlanta to Amsterdam, had three or four hours in Amsterdam and straight on down to Uganda. And it's the same thing going to Tanzania or whatever. There's lots of options there. But um, for Southern Africa, I like those direct flights and just try to get there. Just get it over with. Now yeah. on uh, trophies back, that's one of the one of the questions I always get to. Just to kind of explain on on how the getting the trophies back works for everybody. Yeah, so your your outfitter there, your safari operator will take care of the trophies. They'll get them skinned and salted and all that, and then you know either during their season or when their season ends, they'll take those trophies to a taxidermist or an exporter. And they have to do government paperwork to get those things exported. Well, when they get all that completed, then they contact the client, the hunter, and they'll say, okay, you know, here's your seven animals. They're ready to ship. Where do you want them sent? And just what we, you know, what we recommend people to do is just have a customs broker on this side. And we've got somebody that we can set you up with or whatever, um, and at that point, really and truly, what happens is the custom importer on this side talks to the custom exporter on the other side, mm-hmm. and they do everything, and we're not even involved. I mean, they figure out how they're going to ship it and where it's going to and how it's getting cleared and all the paperwork and red tape. We don't have to deal with that. So, you know, the, the exporter sends it to the importer. The importer gets it in the United States. They clear it with the government at the airport, and then they send it on to your taxidermist. And you're ready to go. Your taxidermist does have to be USDA approved to to accept animals from, you know, from other countries. Mm-hmm. But once you've got that lined up, I mean, there's not much to it. Um, you know, you get an initial email, turn it over to your importer, and the next thing you know, your stuff's at your taxidermist. Yep. And it, it sounds like a lot, but it, as Tim said, it's super, it really it's super I mean, easy. It can be as little as a couple of emails or a phone call. Yep. Uh, yeah, there's there's just not much to it at all. And again, if somebody's got it booked and they got a lot of questions with it or need help and, and we booked it, I'm going to help them with it. Yep. Yeah, it se- again, it seems like a lot, but that, that main part in the middle, right? The outfitter handles everything yeah. on that side, and then the exporter works with the importer on this side. And again, you're not doing anything during that right. process. Besides- yeah, there's lots of moving yeah. pieces there, but it's nothing that we you know, we as hunters have to really deal with. Yeah. Um, and it, it does sound like a lot, and it can be intimidating to people, but you just got to know that you know, you're not going to be that involved with it, and it all just kind of gets done. Yeah. Well, what would you say the, the average first booking for somebody going on their first safari is? Yeah, most of the people and what I recommend to them is going on a seven to 10 day packaged planes game hunt. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody wants kudu on their first trip. And, um, you know, we've got lots of packages in a lot of different countries with that. And, you know, they'll end up having you know, five to seven or eight animals on a package and hunt from seven to 10 days and they'll get a good first taste of Africa. Now I do get the, the guy here and there that'll call and, you know, it's their dream to go shoot a Cape Buffalo Mm -hmm. and that's what they want to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
I'm not of the mindset that you need to dip your feet into it and get experience before you do that. I mean, I think if you want to shoot a buffalo, go over there and shoot a buffalo. Yep. You know, your your PHs are going to be very experienced and they're going to walk you through it and they're going to be there every step of the way. And if that's what you want to do, then they go do it. The one thing that I probably wouldn't recommend as a first safari is a cat safari, just because yeah. all the baiting and checking baits and it's time consuming and tedious where you're spending a lot of time in the truck and not hunting and your first trip, you ought to be out there hunting and, and really experiencing Africa. And the same thing I tell, you know, I talk to a lot of whitetail hunters that are, you know, bow hunting fanatics and they just want a bow hunt. Uh-huh. and i'm like hey take your bow but be open to gun hunting some too because you don't want your first safari or your first taste of africa to be sitting at a blind for 10 days looking out a window yeah i don't want you need to get time, out yeah. there yeah right and, and there's nothing wrong with doing that i mean i've done that and, and enjoyed it but get out there and see all the birds and hear all the noises and see the terrain and, and get out and move around. So do some of both yep. kind of thing. But, you know, I think that first time guy needs to experience all he can of it. And, but yeah, I mean, we've got great packages in South Africa. We've got a couple of great packages in Botswana and we send a lot of people on their first trips there. Yeah. And it's one of those things, like I tell everybody, if you, when you go on your first sheep hunt, right, usually it's not your last sheep hunt because you're going to get, you're going to get addicted to it. And Africa is the same way. If you go once and almost guarantee that you'll go back multiple times because you'll fall in love with the place. Yeah. I've talked to one guy ever that went on safari that didn't want to go back. And I don't know who he booked with or where he said he ate peanut butter sandwiches for a week and hardly saw any, hardly saw any game. He obviously didn't book that through WTA, but he didn't want to go back. But I mean, out of the thousands of people I've talked to that have been to Africa, he's the only one that by the time he finished his hunt, wasn't trying to figure out how to get back on his next trip. Wow. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it because dad and I are going, we did Ethiopia this year and we're going to Tanzania for our first time next year. So yeah, you guys are going to love it and go up there and see all that. I'm, I'm doing Maasai land and in November and December, I've never been there and that's okay. going to be special. And you, yeah, you guys are going to have a, a bang up trip for sure. Looking forward to it. So out of all out of the countries you've seen, what's your favorite? Favorite country. And I don't have one. I, you know, I get asked that question all the time. And I don't have a favorite hunt over there. And I don't have a favorite country. I mean, right now, I've been going to Uganda quite a bit lately and taking folks. And I do believe it's the best buffalo hunting in Africa. I mean, mm-hmm. you will see a 1,000 to 2,000 buffalo a day on a regular kind of day. Wow. And that is something to see. Um, and it's beautiful, wide open savannas with acacia trees. Just looks like what you grew up dreaming the green hills of Africa looked like kind of thing. Uh-huh. And the hunting's off the charts, but you know, you've been Zambia is one of my absolute yep. favorite places. And, you know, the last time I was there on a 14 day hunt with, with a friend, that was probably the best single safari I've ever been on. It, it was incredible. And I'm, I'm going back there actually in six weeks. And I can't wait to get there. And then, I mean, Tanzania is 
phenomenal. They're all great. They're all I mean, great. Yeah. I, I could just go on and on and on. You know, I mean, every one of them is different. I mean, the East Cape of South Africa is wonderful. I mean, it's you can be up in the mountains and hunt like a mule deer hunt. And, it, you know, it, it's just that's the lure of Africa to me is it's it's all so different, but it can all be so good. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. You know, I mean, I tell everybody when they ask me, what's your favorite thing to hunt? Well, I'd rather hunt elephants and turkeys than anything, Just which is a two extremes. Pretty, yeah, two extremes. But I mean, I'm also pretty addicted to hunting buffalo as well. So, yeah. um, you know, I like all that. The, the cats are special when you get one, but that's not the most fun hunt in the world. Yeah. But man, when you're sitting in a blind and the lion's coming towards your roaring, that's something you won't ever forget in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. So just all of it is, you know, it's all so different and, and so cool. And the fact that we don't get to do it that often, you know, is it's always special. And those, uh, you mentioned the cat hunts. I've, I've done the leopard and done the lion and I had one go really smooth. And then the other one that, that drug out for a couple of weeks. And, and for anybody that hasn't gone they're time consuming, cause you have to keep all the baits up. So you're doing, yeah. doing the bait checks throughout the day, right? There's, there's no cell signal. So it's not like whitetails here to where I can, I can have all my cameras, just send it right to the phone and yeah. see what I got to do. So you've got to cover and this is covering miles, right? It's not. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, not, you could literally drive for 10 hours. Yeah. Going from bait to bait to bait. And it's a stinky, messy, yep. not fun job, you know, but in the end when it pays off, it's all worth it. Yep. But and it's it just, is definitely time consuming. And it's, it's just long, long days until you get a cat that's on there and then it may do it the first night or it may be the third night, right. but it's keeping it going during the well, day. It's a mental battle. You know, it's a mental battle. To me, every time you drive up to a bait to check it, you get this anticipation. Yep. And then most of them haven't been hit. So you get the downer. Yep. Or you see one's been hit and you get all up and then you see it's a female. Yep. Or, you know, whatever. But, boy, when you get the right cat that hits the right bait and it all works, I mean, all that is the big buildup. I will say when I shot my lion, that's probably about the most emotional I've ever been on a, yep. a hunt. Just, you know, I, I had failed on a lion hunt before. And because, you know, being so particular, trying to only kill six-year-old or older yep. lion, not in a pride and all the things you do for conservation, and went back and, and killed a nine-and-a-half-year-old lion and wasn't sure how I hit him the first shot, which ended up being just fine. He didn't go anywhere, but I didn't know that. And just all those emotions, you know, and then that's just such a magnificent animal. Oh. I mean, it was – I couldn't even talk for 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, it was just – you just wanted to sit there and touch him and, and absorb that whole experience. And, yeah, they're, they're special for sure. Yeah, just amazing. So where's your – where's the most – off the beaten path spot that you've hunted in Africa? Burkina Faso, for sure. Okay. Um, you know, that's over in, in West Africa by Nigeria and, and Cameroon and some of those places. And um, actually, it's been closed for a few years now. The the terrorists, Boko Haram, have kind of taken over the country. and It's just not safe to go there. And it was a really crazy experience for us. So I took a group over there. And there had been a bombing actually about 10 days before we left at a hotel and a coffee shop. And we were about to cancel. And I called the 
the U.S. consulate actually in Burkina Faso and talked to them. And they're like, we can't tell you to come, but our kids are walking to school every day and there's more security than there's ever been, you know. So it was a bunch of experienced African hunters and we decided to go. We had a wonderful trip, but over there it was it was something I've never seen anywhere else in Africa is basically you didn't get a pH. You had a guy on your truck that is what in any other country would be your head tracker. Uh-huh. And that was it. And they had a single shot, 12 gauge shotgun that they shot guinea fowls for lunch with. <laughs> so if you wounded a buffalo, you were going in to sort it out yourself and you had to make the call on what animals to shoot what animals not to shoot which we loved it but you know we've all been to africa 20 times or whatever Mm -hmm. but um it was certainly interesting we were hunting buffalo and roan and and cob and and some other things so you had to make all the decisions for yourself and it was there's something they called the hardeman winds that come off of the sahara desert and in 10 days over there i never saw the actual sun rise or set dust everywhere you had to wear you know like a buff over your mouth if you were in the car because it's just this dust off the desert uh-huh. you, you know was hazy and it was just like a surreal experience the the capital of the country is Wagadugu. i mean just <laughs> everything about it is as wild as you could possibly imagine and i'm sure glad i got to experience that you know before before it was lost to hunting but i would say that was the the wildest, most beaten off the path kind of place probably I've ever been, period. Wow. So where are some of the other countries that you want to go to? I mean, I'd love to do that hunt you guys did in Ethiopia uh-huh. just to see it. Um, I need to get to Cameroon at some point. Um, and really, I mean, that, that would probably be my top two. I mean, there's other places that I haven't been, but... You know, I mean, I've never been to Benin, but hunting Benin is almost exactly like hunting Burkina Faso. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to go just because it's a, a different country and, and see it and see the people, but it's not going to be all different than something else I've done. But I think those highlands in Ethiopia and then, um, you know, going to the, the savannah for more Derby and then Cameroon, I'd really like to do those. But, you know, I found hunts that I love to do and, you know, I know guys that go hit one spot and they're going to go somewhere else and never do the other one again. Yep. And I, that's great. Um, get all the experience you can out there. But there's certain things I know, I, you know, like I love to turkey hunt, so I'm going to turkey hunt. And I love to elk hunt, so anytime I can, I'm going to go elk hunt. Um, you know, I'm going to go buffalo hunt just as much as I ever can in Uganda because it's phenomenal. And I would you know, jump on a plane at a moment's notice to go to, to Zambia any, any time I could. So, um, you know, some of those things I don't mind doing over and over because it's different every time, mm-hmm. but if you know, you're going to a super quality area to do, you know, something you love, you know, I, I could, I mean, shoot guys deer hunt every year, right? Yep, you know, exactly. I mean, um, that kind of thing. And, you know, like this year, I, I'm pretty excited. I'm going to, Kilimbero and in Tanzania and yeah, we're going to hunt, but I'm going to tiger fish. Yeah. It, they've got the best two rivers in, in Africa for big 15 to 20 pound tiger fish. 
And I am so jazzed up about going on that trip and, you know, seeing that river system and those fish. And I'm much more of a hunter than a fisherman, but that's going to be something pretty, it's pretty, pretty cool and, and special, you know, to be able to go out there and do that and have some of the best buffalo hunting in Africa today as well in the same place. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty serious casting blast when you're, hunting buffalo and crocodiles and able to catch 20 pound tiger fish yeah no joke so one of the one of the things i did want to talk to you about because i've I've explained it on here the best that i can in the past right the conservation model in africa how it's different than what the conservation model is here in the u.s yeah Like, like explain it for for it's much more cut and dry listeners that it is and and i think people just have a a hard time absorbing that it can be that cut and dry is how you say yeah it's it's super simple if it has value it stays Mm -hmm. if it doesn't have value it's gone and i mean it's that simple if animals have value over there they will be taken care of they will be managed and they will flourish. If animals don't have value over there, they will all be killed either for the, you know, for the local people to eat or to clear them out of an area. So it could be planted with crops or the cattle could be put up or something with monetary value can be done with that land or developed or, you know, whatever, but it's that simple. If, if you go to a hunting concession in Zimbabwe that's a government lease, there's not supposed to be anybody living there. And the safari company has a quota of animals that they pay for and that hunters pay for. And certain parts of that money go to the local community. That's how their schools are built. That's how their wells are built. That's how roads are maintained. You know, lots of things for the individual local person comes from that conservation fund. And on the flip side, they get a whole bunch of the meat. Mm-hmm. So if if they didn't get any of that and there's elephants coming out of the area and raiding their crops, they're going to just poach them. They're going to poison them. They're going to shoot them. They're going to do whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they might eat them. They might not if they're poisoned. But they're going to kill those. I'm just using elephants as a, as an example, yeah. but they're going to kill those elephants. If their community gets $10,000 dumped into the community pot to help with buildings and wells and infrastructure and all that, and 500 people get fed from an elephant, they're going to let the elephants kind of do their thing, you know, and you can see if you fly over, a hunting concession. I've seen this in Zim a number of times. You can tell where the hunting concession starts oh, yeah. and, and the not hunting concession starts from the air because it looks like a total wasteland. And then there's a definite line and the vegetation is up and you can just tell the area is flourishing because it's taken care of through hunters dollars and, and it has value. I mean, it's so simple. You know, I don't understand a lot of stuff with the rhinos these days because they cut those horns off and just pile them up. If they would sell them and flood the market with them, then people wouldn't need to poach them. You know, I mean, that's something you can cut off and they can regrow and everybody in South Africa would have two 
rhinos in their back for you. <laughs> exactly. Because you know, they'd be getting some money off of it, but there'd be more and more and more rhinos and, and the, the poaching would would go down because they wouldn't need to poach them. But, I, you know, it's yeah, it's definitely different over there. I mean, you know, you can't say that about everything in America, but um, for sure, I mean, if it doesn't have value, it's not going to exist over there, period. And I, and I think that, like, the concept after you go there and you see it, you fully understand it. But for the the, yeah. the people that are used to the North America conservation model and, and hear that, they're like, it can't it can't be that way, right? Like that's what I always hear. It can't it can't really be like that. Um, well, it certainly is. It, I mean, it, it is in its most simple terms. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, it I is. mean, so when I was there in March, we actually we were up by the Nile River in Uganda, and we were in an area we didn't even plan on hunting buffalo. And the first afternoon we got in, the game ranger came in and he had two different groups of problem buffalo that were hanging around villages. Uh-huh. I mean, and when I'm talking about hanging around, I'm talking about two or 300 yards. So they were messing with, they were all old bulls. They were all cantankerous. They were chasing people. They were charging people. You know, they couldn't go get water. They couldn't go here. They, you know, the kids trying to go to school were getting chased by buffalo. And they asked us to go sort it out for them. Uh-huh. Um, and I mean, there were trophy fees on them, you know? So, I mean, there was money being generated from it and there, you know, half that money or more went back to the community, which was great. But I mean, you know how it is. You've seen this. It wasn't five minutes after I shot a Buffalo that 50 people popped out of from nowhere. Yep. And you know, they didn't have far to come from the village, but I mean, it was, they popped out and they all had buckets and bags and machetes and butcher knives and it was all we could do to take a couple pictures before they were in there. And I remember it was a Saturday night. And we were like, there's going to be a party in the village tonight because yep. everybody's going to have a full belly of, um, you know, a buffalo. And the thing is, they could have killed those buffalo a couple weeks ago. They've been yeah. harassing them for a while. They could have they could have snared them or they, they could have done something, yep. could have poisoned them. But they knew that when the hunters came to the area, that they would come and hunt the buffalo, and they would get money and meat. So it had value, mm-hmm. so they left them alone. Yeah, you, you know, and I mean, that, and that's a case of a problem buffalo, but I mean, it's that way with all the animals in that area. I mean, they'd be out snagging, you know, the odd heart of beast or, you know, cob or whatever just to eat them, yep. but they know they're going to get meat and money if they take care of them. So you get the locals on the side of conservation, and man, that's where you win. Exactly. So I've got one I got one story here, and that's elephant hunting in Botswana. The only time I've ever elephant hunted was when Botswana opened up again after the closure a couple yeah. of years ago. And I, you've, you've elephant hunted before, and it's one of those, like a cat, it, it like the whole experience changes you, right? Like you get to experience yeah. it through that. But it, it wasn't until the end, like, and we saw, I mean, we saw a lot of elephants. Like you think, okay, you're going elephant hunting, you're going to see two or three. Like, no, we saw hundreds every day. Now you're yeah. looking for an old bull through this whole thing, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of elephants and, and so forth finally got a bull down and, and the next day we were able to get all the meat loaded up and, and you head to the village, right? There were six villages in the concession. So how it worked with the outfitter is you rotated. So buffalo yeah. uh, elephant number one went to village number one, number two went to village number two and it, and it bounced around so you could get even distribution. Yep. 
Um, so we were in the, the, the first elephant that had been in the village in, I'd say, six years. Is that how long the closure was in Botswana? Or was it yeah, I think so. Six, six or so years. And that's when the, the, the villagers come out. And, I mean, they're super excited. And it's a party while everything's getting cut up. And, and that's when the elders from the village came out. And we were there wrapping up filming and so forth. And, I mean, one of them like kind of lit into me, right? Like, sees the American why why is there such an anti elephant hunting going on we need more elephants hunting and then he went into which you don't hear this in the in the american news botswana is actually overpopulated with elephants oh. right like everywhere has a carrying like if you're a whitetail hunter look out how many whitetail can you manage on your 20 yeah. acres 40 acres 100 acres however much you have right there's a carrying capacity cuz they'll eat you out of house and home now oh. Take that and do it into an elephant, right? There's right. there's a carrying capacity that the elephants can do, and they're over the carrying capacity in Botswana. So you see the damage that they do to their crops, fields, trees. Well, I mean, there's places I've driven to in Botswana that look like a bomb went off. Yeah. That every tree or shrub was pushed to the ground. There was no grass on the ground, and it was all from elephants. And you know? But it's just one of those things, and I don't know why. Like I'm, I'm fortunate and able to travel all over the world multiple times a year and, and see things a lot of people don't. But even that, like it took him telling me, why do you not want to have more hunters here? Why is it so negative? We are overpopulated with elephants. We're going to have to kill them if you don't come and do it. Right. Yeah. And when they say kill them, they mean poison them. Right. It's not going right. to be a great death. It's not going to be uh, the meat's not going to be usable. But if you can, can you just imagine if you had a group of 20 elephants coming into your field that you relied on your whole family to eat for a year? Like it doesn't well, it's take gone overnight. Yeah. It it's takes gone overnight. one yeah. night and your, your yeah. field's gone. Right. And so for that, yeah, that, that family, that's, that means that's your food. Right. It's everything. It's everything. Yeah. So they protect it and, I, I was just like, it's just one of those things. Like I have a, every time I'm in Africa, it's like, I have one of those or two of those experiences to where it clicks, right? Like something in life clicks yeah. while you're there because it's, you're not on your phone or on TV or like, well, here, you're just, and it, it gets illustrated to you in real life. Yep. I mean, you, you don't hear about it. You see it. Yep. So, but you know, Botswana is probably the most overpopulated place with elephants in Africa. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it is, but I mean, and I'm making this number up, but if, if their carrying capacity is 80,000, they have 350,000. Yeah, it'll just something ridiculous. Yep. Yep. Just but blows it away. Wherever there are elephants right now in a country where they're hunting them, and almost everywhere that elephants exist, period, in Africa, they're overpopulated. And it's not that there's that many elephants compared to what there were a hundred years ago it's that the human population in africa just exponentially grows mm -hmm. and the elephants are running out of room so we have to set a, aside hunting concessions and parks where they have a place to live but you got to think about elephants a hundred years ago you know an elephant will push a tree down and eat one branch off of it yep well that ruined that tree but a hundred years ago, elephants basically migrated their whole life. They were just on a big cycle of following the food and the rain. And that might take them 1,500 miles in a year to do that circle. 
Well, if they knocked over a tree here and there, it was no big deal because they were gone three days later. Or, you know, they weren't eating themselves out of house and home. Now, if they walk 100 miles this direction, there's a city. And if they walk over here, there's four villages and their their habitat is just running out from human population. So they're in these smaller and smaller and smaller areas. Mm -hmm. And if they're not managed by hunting, then it turns into Botswana. I mean, it's, you know, and people don't understand that because, you know, the normal person in America, their exposure to elephants is either the zoo or what they saw on the Discovery Channel. Mm -hmm. And all of that is taken in big parks where it's managed right, you know, and they're not getting a true picture of wild Africa. No, the re- the re- um, what I call the real Africa, right? Real Africa. Real exactly. Africa. Yep. No, and and to population. So Ethiopia has when we were there that that was the the click moment for me. They have 120 million people in Ethiopia, and Ethiopia is not very big, right? Right. So there's there's obviously millions that live in live in Addis and and some other big cities there, but most of them are just spread literally throughout the whole countryside. So right. when I mean their villages, so where we were hunting, it was by far the most populated area to where we were hunting Mount Niala. And they obviously have areas that, that they're not going to be humans, right? Because that's where the mountain eel right. are or the reed buck and so forth. But the human populations, one there that you look at and just the way that it's growing, like it can't sustain how many people are there with the area that's there for the animals. Like you can see, sure. you can you can fast forward in your mind 25 years down the road or, or however far you want to go and see what it'll change. Right. And yep. the animals are going to be the ones that are hurting there because that land will eventually become more valuable to have a, a more people on it. Right. And they'll be yep. farming on it and so forth. That was that was the one that blew me away in Ethiopia is just how many people and how far spread they were. They weren't in tight villages. They were just spread out and subsistence farming all over the place. Right. But yep. and again, it's, and one, it's, it's one of those things you hear you're like, I can't believe you're going to Ethiopia and I get there and everybody's great. Right. Like everybody, every step of the way from the airport all the way through, everybody is extremely nice and, and, and hospital and you didn't have any bad situations, right? Like along the whole thing. And I always tell everybody, like, I live in Michigan, there are spots in uh, Flint, Detroit. I'm like, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to bring you there. Right. And that that, that was always my example as well. Exactly. People be like, oh, is it safe? I'm like, you know what? There's places in Joburg I don't want to be. Yep. There's places in Detroit I guarantee you I will never be. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That, that's always my thing. Yeah. I mean, but, it, you know, as hunters, we fly into a city somewhere and then we get out into the We're, into the wild and the least populated, you know, as, as little populated as it can be in a place. Yep. And you're not, you know, I mean the bad stuff generally doesn't go on out in some hunting concession. I mean, it's, it's around cities and that sort of thing. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing is I've always said is I think the last place any quote bad guys want to come is a hunting camp where they know everybody's armed, armed (laughs) and, and generally very good shots, better, better, better than average. So I have seen, I, I, the, the pH is in Africa. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but just get so much experience. Right. And it's not an, it's nothing against it. It's not a sheep guide, not an elk guide, not a mule deer guide, nothing like that. Like 
when you're elephant hunting, buffalo hunting, or cat hunting, you literally life and death when you're out there, right? Yeah. So their their skill their skill level is just just up a few notches, right? And some huh. extremely good shots under pressure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, they have to be. So, all right, last one for you. What's your most memorable experience that you've had in Africa? Um, probably just before I got, uh, it'd be a couple of them. Before I got my line, there were actually two male lines coming together, roaring at each other, and we got between them. Ooh. I mean, I wasn't in a blind. I shot it like stalking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just that huge roar. They were four or 500 yards apart coming straight together. And I don't know if they were coming to fight or, you know, were buddies and trying to get back together or whatever, but it was pretty intense being in the middle of them and, you know, being out on foot and just all that noise and, and all that. And then I, you know, I guess on the flip side of that is just numerous times on elephant hunts having you know, elephants come and stand off or mock charge and, oh. you know, be at six to 10 yards and you not wanting to shoot. Yeah. You know, we had, we had one in Namibia and the Caprivi once that I was with a, a guy and he shot a bull and there was a, a herd around and we're walking up to the bull and out of nowhere, here comes a cow with a calf, oh. a little tiny calf. And, you know, everybody's got their gun up. Nobody wants to shoot. She gets to six yards and, you know, the pH is like one more step and everybody shoot. And we're just like, don't move, don't move, don't move. And finally she turned around and took that baby away. Nobody wanted to shoot no. her. I mean, we would have been sick. Yep. But, man, you talk about an adrenaline dump afterwards having that thing yeah. right on top of you. <laughs> so, the first, the first. But I think that's why I love elephant hunting is because every time I've been, there's been one or two of those kind of interchanges you know, where you realize you are not the top dog and this could go bad pretty quick, you know. Exactly. Our first night in Botswana, we came across the one tusker elephant that was borderline. If it would have had a second tusk, it would have been all over, right? But it was it was a big and heavy old bull. And, of course, it was right at, right at dusk, so we only had a limited amount of time. It wasn't one that you could really get there and study. It was one we had to, yeah. to move on quick, right? So you're moving, you're, you're bumping them a little bit more than what you're, you're just going straight at them versus the approach you would have done if it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, right? Sure. So you're bumping them a little bit, and it was on the, the third time we had bumped them, just trying to get a better look, and, and Jason was trying to judge it. And you know what? You can only bump, you can only bump them so much, right? Yeah. And this was a bull that had obviously somewhere that he wanted to go to. And we were messing with him on the third one. He said, all right, I'm coming at you. And it was one of those where, where all of a sudden you just see all these big trees just parting, right? Like yeah. it's just coming through. And, and I've hunted Africa long enough to realize I'm not outrunning anything, an elephant, mm-hmm. a cat, a Buffalo. I'm not outrunning anything. So it was one of those moments to where you just, we, everybody had hunted long enough together to where you just stood and you made the line and it was one of those things everybody had their it's it's closer than what most people listening would think it is but they had that line to where if it crossed it everybody was just going yeah. just going to give it and 
you stood and then all of a sudden it was that mock charge dust everywhere and he finally just turned and, and ran off and then that was when the adrenaline or emotion hits right like during yeah. the moment it's just going yeah you at, don't think about and, it then. and yeah. after that i mean the heart rate's going just i mean you got goosebumps <laughs> afterwards i look back my camera guy had his camera tucked like a football he was gone <laughs> like he was, and they're like how many times did we tell you you got to stand like don't run but that was just it, another great Africa memory that, well, that'll be with me forever. To me, honestly, that kind of situation right there is why elephant hunting sort of is the pinnacle mm-hmm. to me. And it's not about shooting. It's, it's the ones that you have those experiences with and they walk off and you walk off yep. kind of thing. And you get to go do it the next day. Yep. And yeah, but you feel pretty small and I don't care how big your gun is. Yeah. It feels too small. You're like, what <laughs> yeah. Are, yeah wait, I mean, a bull elephant. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize it's like 14 feet tall. Right. Yeah, so so think of those Botswana bulls and think about a basketball hoop. So the basketball rims 10 feet, it's on its heads on top of the board. And I mean, yeah. super wide coming at you and you're sitting there like, well, it just but it doesn't matter what's between you and it. It's coming. It, it I mean, doesn't no a tree. It just runs trees, bushes. Mm-hmm. None of that matters. It all is going to get flattened. It's like a bulldozer. If mm-hmm. it wants to get to you, it's getting to you. Yep. Well, I was just had the adrenaline running. See, I'm getting the adrenaline running just rethinking <laughs> of it right now. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's perfect, Tim. Thank you for your all your time today. Yeah. I know you're busy. We're gonna let you enjoyed it. Let you get back on it, and we're gonna have to have you on here again after you do a couple more trips to Africa. I mean, you know, we all still, right. and I know you traveled Asia a bunch too. We didn't even get a chance to talk about it today. Well, we'll do that next time. All right, thanks, Tim. All right, take care. Thanks for all your support and downloads. If you like this episode, please go and leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts, as that always helps. Do you want to book that hunt of a lifetime? then give the team at Worldwide Trophy Adventures a call at 1-800-346-8747. Or if you want to start a tags portfolio for those limited entry tags, give the team a call at 1-800-775-8247. Enjoy your journey.